Podcast for fans of the guests who appear on this show, as well as fans of music in general, and a podcast for musicians, singers, songwriters, artists, entertainers who want to learn more to help them grow in what they're doing. I'm your host, Bruce Wozniak from Now Hear This Incorporated. Check out nhte.net and be sure you are subscribing to this podcast so you get every episode automatically every week. Be sure that you are receiving the weekly e newsletter about the podcast too. I only send you an email once a week, no spam, and all you need is just to put in your email address, no other information, at nhte.net. Also, if you have questions or comments that you would like to send to me, the email address is podcast at nhte.net. Joining me today on the Now Hear This Entertainment guest line from the Princeton, New Jersey area, my guest is an internationally acclaimed vocalist, actor, songwriter, and producer who is a voting member of the Grammys. On June 5th, he released a video that got more than 125,000 views on Facebook alone in the first 12 and a half days. He has toured with Grammy-winning Chanticleer and was hailed as the jewel in their crown. He is known for his extreme range, stylistically between Sam Smith and Pavarotti, and has done everything from being a solo vocalist with the London Philharmonic to doing lead vocals on an international club hit remix with DJ Tracy Young, which appeared on an album with Madonna, Chaka Khan, and Cyndi Lauper. You've been hearing a song of his called Bring It Back. It's my pleasure to welcome to Now Hear This Entertainment, Terry Barber. Thank you so much, Bruce, for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here and talk with you today. My pleasure. And let's do a correction right off the bat. Did I pronounce that properly, Chanticleer? Um, people pronounce it Chanticleer, um, even though it is spelled Chanticleer. Um, and the references from Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, um, very old story about a singing rooster, um, since the group was founded uh, to have all male singers included, um, they were being clever. And this rooster liked to sing. Obviously, a rooster is the boy chicken, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, um, and in, this, in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, uh, it's really about the singing rooster, Paradolote. Um, so anyway. <laughs> okay. Chanticleer and Paradolote. Paradolote is the girl. Sorry. <laughs> I, 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 again, another correction. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I was going to say shame on me because normally... I will clarify something like that before I hit record, and Terry and I got to talking about a bunch of things before I hit record, and I forgot to go back and say, is it Chanticleer? And he's here to say, it's actually Chanticleer, but thank you for correcting me politely. Anyhow, every week on this show, the first order of business is always to have the guest talk about the song of theirs that was playing during the intro. In this case, Terry, tell the audience about your song, Bring It Back. Sure. So um, around the turn of the century... I was living in Manhattan and collaborating with a songwriter named Terry Radigan. She actually spelled Terry the same way I do with a Y, which is traditionally for boys, but um, that's the way her parents spelled it or the way she likes to spell it, Terry with a Y um, and Radigan. Um, and she and I co-wrote the song. And then uh, a few years later, um, after it was on my first album, um, it was remixed in this way, adding some nice percussion that I liked by Jeff Tyson. And I kept in touch with him. He's now living in Prague and doing a lot of producing still. 
And just because I was talking over it, tell the audience what the inspiration was for the song, kind of the, the meaning of it, since they couldn't really hear it. For sure. I mean, it's a sad love song, if you will, like, you know, broken love song. Um, a person who is uh, on the on the outs <laughs> of their relationship um, and, and talking back about, about it. Um, I really loved our process. Terry and I would get together and usually she would have her guitar and we would just be right in the moment kind of trading ideas back and forth. Um, in this new world, I collaborate with people in a much more traditional sense where you, I send you this and you do something and you send it back to me. Um, but it was really a very um, a nice atmosphere that we were, would always create in the writing process. And I miss that. And now that I'm back in the New England area, I've talked to Terry a little bit about getting back together and doing more writing. And how had you and she come to know each other in the first place to be in a position to collaborate on that song? Through an agent that was shopping um, oh. some work that I was doing to labels. Um, and he said, you know, um, it would be great if you were doing more original things because I was doing a lot of covers um, and a lot of work in opera and musical theater and, um, you know, in genres where you're not expected to be a writer. Um, and, uh, and so he said, you know, if you had some great original songs and he hooked me up actually with two really great writers that he was working with Roger Greenewalt um, out of Brooklyn was the other one. And I did a lot of writing with him as well. Uh, interesting. Interesting. Well, after we finish this interview, Terry and I are going to be talking even more in bonus content that will only be available exclusively through the Patreon for this show. You get to hear more from the guest. You get to hear some behind-the-scenes type stuff from me. You get to hear a little more lighthearted, sometimes more personal conversation. And this is all only 5 bucks a month. There are currently 26 audio files up there, so Terry Barber will be number 27 and you can gain access to all those bonus conversations by going to the show website, nhte.net, and hitting the orange-colored Support Us on Patreon button to go sign up. You'll also then automatically get access to all the bonus recordings that come out every week hereafter. If you get the weekly e-newsletter or saw the post that I put across social media a few weeks ago, you read that my application for the COVID-19 relief that the government was giving to small businesses was rejected because they told me it was only being given to agriculture businesses. So regarding Patreon, you're not only getting bonus content every week, but your $5 a month does help me with expenses I have for doing this show every week. Just go to nhte.net and use the orange-colored Support Us on Patreon button to go sign up for all the bonus audio. Terry, at the end of today's show, we're going to be playing your new single, which will be released the day after this interview comes out. You will get a chance to tell the audience about the song itself later, but for right now, wow, <laughs> congratulations on the video for it. As I mentioned in the intro, getting more than 125,000 views on Facebook alone in the first 12 and a half days. Two questions for you here. One is, can you tell the audience about the making of that video? And secondly, no matter how many guests I ask, how did you get that that video, that blog, that social media post, etc., to go viral the answer is always, I don't know. I don't know that you can make something go viral. It just happens. Any chance that you can be the breakthrough guest who provides some insight on how that video had so much success so fast? Sure. Um, so let's go backwards here. The video, uh, of course, I am thoughtful about trying to share it 
in my network, right? Um, and um, one thing I noticed about this video that was different than other things that I've shared in the past is that more than likes and more than comments, it was getting shares, mm. which said to me, people are, it's resonating with people and they're saying, my, this will resonate with the people I care about. Mm. So I'm going to put it up. And, you know, sometimes not even with, without a comment or without a like or anything, they just share it. So we're looking at near a thousand shares now. Wow. Um, and that is just, that, that opens the work up to every one of those people's network. And how, wow, wow, that's amazing. So I think when it comes to viral, you, you're, you're really trying to go for shares is what you want. You want people to feel so compelled by the work that it's, they, they actually then have a sense of ownership too, I think, when they say, this is something that I'm sharing with you. So then, and, and I don't want to answer the question for you because I'd still like you to talk about the making of that video, but then does that influence the making of the video because you're saying, well, wait, I want this to be something that's going to connect with people in a way that it'll move them to perhaps share it? Ugh, you know, I hope not. That that would be kind of disgusting to me. Like I'm not, mm. you know, when you think of the word commercial um, in, its, in its grossest sense, I would say that that's, you know, that to me that that gets away from artistry. Like you, mm-hmm. to, I, you know, and I'm going to talk about making the video and making the song, um, which was really me reacting to what I'm going through, um, you know, to do with not one, but more than one crisis. Um, and the original inspiration for the song um, actually was to do with the coronavirus, COVID-19, and being sheltered in place, but also I wanted it to have a, a larger double entendre feel um, that anyone who's going through something difficult, whether it be breaking up with someone they're in love with, um, or that it would resonate in that way as well. So if you listen through, there are some references that are very seem very specific to the coronavirus and um, this kind of self-quarantine that we've all been enduring. Um, but then you can also, I, I was hoping that in 10 years, uh, people wouldn't just listen to it back and say, oh, that was that coronavirus song, but mm. actually that it would resonate with people in that moment about whatever they're struggling with. Nice, nice. Yeah, so it sounds like I had it half right. You're doing a song that you do want people to feel something but it's, you know, stop there, Bruce. It's not, I want them to feel something so that they'll share it on social media. It's, I just want the people to feel something. And that might be different from one person to the next, to the next, to the next. They might, four people might listen to it and all feel something different, but your job was still accomplished because you wanted the people to feel something and, and that's where it ends. And what they do after that is up to them. This, you said like five brilliant things. So I need to pause and reel back <laughs> here and say, the first one <laughs> was about my personal, one of my personal missions, which I believe should be among the top missions for any artist, and that is to make people feel. When I go into a museum and I know I fall in love with a painting, it's because I felt something Mm. when I experienced it. Um, And the second brilliant thing that you've touched on is about art and how, um, how it has a beautiful, unique power to make people feel individually. And so you and I can be listening to the same piece and I might start cheering up and you start laughing. Mm. And it's not that my experience is, diff- is better than yours or yours is better than mine. It's that we felt something from that art that I think is the beautiful thing about art. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a unique uh, emotional experience. Mm-hmm. 
how it resonates with the, with the person is is in, is individual, and that's part of the beauty. It's not a language where you say you, know, you can't say, "Hey, go to the fridge and get me some beer with your violin." But what you can do is make someone feel, and that is much more beautiful in a way. You know? Yeah, and it doesn't make it wrong that I laughed even though you teared up. It's just our own interpretation and the way that it moved us. That's right. So, Terry, before I move on and before we get away from we were talking about, initially I had said, how can you make something go viral, that type of thing. I also said the making of the video, and I think it's important that the audience gets an opportunity to hear about how this was put together because, obviously, listeners, I do want you to go and watch the video. It's very, very well done, Terry. Congratulations to to you and, and everyone who worked on it. But do please talk about the making of the video for that song. Sure. So I've collaborated with J.D. Anderson, uh, who owns an amazing facility in St. Louis. Perhaps I could talk about that a little bit more um, in the Patreon. But um, he decided to take the lead on the video a little bit. Um, I had told him what I imagined. So from uh, he and I were kind of co-directing, if you will. But as far as production, he really took the lead. And um, initially, when I started writing the song about coronavirus and you know COVID-19 and, and all the difficulty that we're all facing uh, because of that, um, I had identified many images that I thought were really touching and impactful um, that would resonate with people um, who are struggling through this crisis. Um, and then as I was getting closer to the production being finished, um, we had this second crisis um, and of course, a big um, move, uh, push for the Black Lives Matter movement. And I felt that it was insensitive to ignore that people are, you know, they were already uh, feeling very bottled up, ready mm. to explode, if you will, mm-hmm. when this travesty took place. And so to ignore that they were going through that and release this single and say nothing of, uh, you know, the whole Black Lives Matter mo- movement um, that I really care about uh, was. was not an option. So we went back to the table a little bit and said, um, you know, where are some more images that will um, perhaps uh, make people want to get involved um, and do good. So Mm. um, I've been using the release of the song now to raise funds for the NAACP. Um, And so people can make a donation on the original post um, from my page of the video and or, and and my page, by the way, is facebook.com slash touring artist. And they can go there and, and make a donation directly to the NAACP from that post. Or if they decide to purchase the MP3, then I'm giving half the proceeds to the NAACP on the back end on my side. Mm, fantastic. So, um, you know, I'm really just trying to hopefully get as much attention on that that uh, me- part of the mechanism as possible. Um, and, you know, a lot of people tell me that they cried when they watched the video. Mm. Um, some people find it um, lift- uplifting. Mm. Um, it's definitely... It's definitely emotional for me. Um, and if, if, I think if people really watch it and listen to the music and the lyrics and they aren't moved by it, then I've failed. <laughs> you know, then I've failed. Because, uh, or, or maybe they've been living in some alternate universe. That we all, <laughs> there you go. Uh, <laughs> there you go. Don't take it all um, on yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I said an awful lot about you in the intro, but something else that I could have mentioned is countertenor. Tell the audience what that is. Yeah, I'm glad you said it so slowly because even in the music community, I'm surprised 
these days that that is not a term that most people are familiar with. And the reason is that it's the least common vocal category. So, um, you know, we've all heard of bass and baritone, tenor, alto, mezzo-soprano, soprano. Mm-hmm. Countertenor is not always mentioned, and that's because there just are fewer countertenors. And countertenor means uh, men who sing higher than tenor, and very oftentimes countertenors are using their head voice or the upper voice as the primary part of their instrument. Mm. In my tours and recordings, um, I really like to show my whole range and do things in, in what I jokingly call my man voice as well. <laughs> um, but a lot of my countertenor colleagues um, really mix into their lower voice at the very bottom of their range, if you will, but they don't use like the lower octave in a lot of cases of their range that much. Um, and it, it, the countertenor voice has a historical significance in modern performances uh, because before the classical period, men and women weren't always allowed to be on stage. And there was this tragic tradition of the castrati, which um, you know, great composers like Handel wrote 42 operas for Castrati to be lead roles, lead singers, and they would often sing the parts of men and women. Wow. Um, and now when we perform those same operas, we have to have women dressed as men who can sing very high, mm. or we use countertenors. Okay, okay. Wow, that's fascinating. So countertenor in, 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 in classical music is a, a nice uh, alternative to the castrato, uh, which, of course, is not a tradition that is uh, uh, happening anymore, I think. And then uh, countertenors are often mislabeled. So, for example, we don't tend to, to label countertenors in popular music, but everyone in our Western culture has heard countertenors a lot. Hmm. Singers like Barry Gibb, uh. Roy Orbison, Frankie Valli, you know, there are so many um, very high singers uh, in Prince, Michael Jackson, Justin Timberlake used that upper part of his voice a lot. Um, and Adam Levine uses it in almost every song. Right. And then you've got Sam Smith. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why he's labeled in my um, description, because I'm trying to get people to understand that the sound wise, um, it's somewhere between this kind of classical lower voice, which is still a high man's voice mm-hmm. in Pavarotti but also like there are some things I do that have a pop sensibility and that's why, um, you know, and I'm using that upper part of my voice a lot. So anyway, (laughs) um, I digress a little bit here, but that's what a countertenor is. And um, that's what I'm doing. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Very, very interesting. I'm glad that you explained about a countertenor because I'm thinking of episode 296 of this show when my guest was Julia Lima, whose music is a crossover that blends classical and opera with pop, jazz, and Latin. Listeners, I'll put a link to my interview with her on the show page for Terry's episode at nhte.net. In this case, Terry, you too are doing a really interesting range of music, as I alluded to in the intro. You began as a classical artist, though. Can you say why you chose that path initially? For sure, yes. I believe um, in our culture, in Western culture, that classical training is the best training, Um And to do with my voice specifically, um, I started training at uh, private lessons at seven, um, and I was a boy soprano at the time. And perhaps that's why, you know, many of my highest notes kind of stayed. When my voice changed, I got more low notes, but pretty much I've had the same high range in the top my entire life. Mm. Um, 
and and I was developing that part of my range, so I was really thankful that it didn't go away. <laughs> anyway, um, I, I felt that the training for classical was the strongest training that you could get in our culture, um, and to do specifically with the voice, um, that it would allow me to have a tool set. Um, when I'm working with young people, I often tell them, you know, whether you're a dancer or an actor or an instrumentalist or a vocalist or even a painter, starting with the master, starting with classical, is a great place. It will give you um, a tool set, especially to do with singing, knowing what you can do with health um, and help you work on your range. It, there's so many different uh, kind of skills that you learn from, from starting with classical. Um, and that has allowed me to color outside the lines a lot. Mm. It's allowed me to say, okay, um, here comes this new age project um, and understanding how I can use that tool set to do that with health at, or, or not, you know, um, in my Freddie Mercury project, I'm doing um, a lot of his songs, and he has a, he had a gritty sound actually from nodes um, that he would make in a screamy rock way. That's, my voice doesn't do that, and I know that, and I don't try to. If I did, I would probably go the way of Adele and others who had to have to cancel tours and have uh, vocal problems and whatever. You know, it, I know my voice doesn't do that, so I don't do it. <laughs> and that's because of classical training. Well... I liked that you said you understand if a new age project comes along, you understand how you can do it. But I like to say you also understand why you can do it. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Because of that training that you have, you understand not only the technique, but the concept behind why you're able to do it. I think that's right. Actually, um, I have a brilliant teacher. His name's Craig Wick, and he's much more of a technician than a scientist to do with the voice than any other teacher I had ever had. Um, and I really enjoy, I, you know, I started out as a double degree in engineering and music at Northwestern for my undergrad. And I really enjoyed that technical scientific side. Um, you know, you see so many people who um, are artists and musicians who are attracted to science and math. Um, there's a great synergy between those parts of your brain, like the, the calculated part and the creative part. And, um, I, I'm always really interested in the technical side. When I'm in a lesson, he'll say, oh, you're having this problem. Well, this is what's going on with your voice. Now do this. I do it, and it's fixed. You know, it, it's a, it should be a science. It shouldn't be imagine a rainbow and, you know, hop on one foot, and maybe you'll sing this better. <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, as proud of the intro as I was that I wrote for the beginning of the show, I'm starting to feel like now I've left out even more because – Listeners, there's even more to what Terry does. Can you talk about the range of tours that you have self-produced? Sure. So when you study in school in the arts, they, all the programs I know about tell you how to train for someone else's machine. Um, and Bruce, you and I had talked about this a little bit before the interview. Um, you know, they say audition for the Metropolitan Opera, audition for uh, Broadway, whatever, you know, kind of prepare yourself to subject yourself to the criticism of someone else. Um, and that was the beginnings of my career. That's what I did. I felt that was what I needed to do. That was what I was trained to do. And so I built a resume doing those things, um, you know, at the Metropolitan Opera, at, um, with Chanticleer touring, um, you know, doing the kinds of things that I thought were important for my resume, if you will. Well, about a decade ago, an agent submitted me for a national showcase where I was able in 15 minutes to demonstrate what I wanted to do on my own tour. I remember the conversation. She asked me, 
well, um, she said, I'm going to submit you for this showcase and, and you should perform um, what you're going to do on your tour. And I just was a, a, a gobsmacked. I thought, my tour? What is that? <laughs> you know? um, and so I started to dream. And that was the best moment. And the very first tour that I put together was um, it's called Classical for Everyone. And you can still hear my, one of my first self-produced recordings is available everywhere that you stream digitally. It's called Classical for Everyone. And I wanted to make a program that would be driven by chestnuts in the classical world, recognizable melodies that people all love, whether they've heard them on a pizza commercial or actually in the opera, mm. um, but also have it be fun and entertaining. So I had a few criteria and I was going through like, okay, either they're going to love this song the first time they hear it because it's funny and it, you can't help but laugh, or it's something that everyone's going to go, Oh, I love that song, mm. you know? And so, um, so that was kind of my criteria for that first tour. Um, then my next couple of tours were musical theater programs. Um, I did the undergraduate uh, musical theater program at Northwestern and I really enjoy concertizing this music. You can kind of play a bunch of different roles in an hour and a half. Um, and so I have the music of Andrew Lloyd Webber um, and a kind of more general Broadway um, review. Wow. Best of Broadway. Um, and then I did like a Les Miserables in concert uh, tour with uh, a chamber orchestra. Um, and then my most recent tours were Around the World in 80 Minutes. Um, again, you can find many of these uh, recordings online. And in that one, I wanted to give the world their favorite melodies, but unique arrangements for a concert pianist, a multi-wind player um, who plays a bunch of uh, different reed instruments plus flute, um, and then an extreme vocal range. So I have like La Vie en Rose, for example, or Esame Mucho, Shenandoah, kind of the world's favorite melodies, a lot of them driven by folk or traditional melodies. Um, and then a unique version. Like you've never, you've heard a lot of these songs. You've heard Danny Boy, but you've never heard all of Danny Boy. Oh, right? I see. So that was really, that's a really fun program. The wind player plays um, four different instruments and uh, has experience with the New York Philharmonic and LA Philharmonic. Mm. Um, so just a beautiful player. And then Juilliard trained concert pianist uh, was the original player and for the recording. Um, so yeah, that's Alec uh, Alina Kiryeva is the pianist. Um, and I've had uh, Kat Cantrell play the wind. I've also had uh, Ryan Walsh play the wind. Um, they actually introduced me to each other and they both have similar experience playing in wow. Hollywood films. Wow. And, wow. Um, Amazing. So, Amazing. Yeah, it's great. It, Amazing collaborators and in when I choose collaborators, I'm trying to pick someone who's going to inspire me. I don't want it to be an accompanist relationship. I feel like that's like a slave. Relationship. <laughs> you know, I'd much rather have, have the person do something that I think, Ooh, I like that idea. And then I bounce off that and do yeah, something different yeah. than I would have, you know? Um, so again, I digress. <laughs> well, but you know, amazing collaborators, but also an amazing range of productions that you just talked about. But yes, you're right. You know, to me, that's not a collaboration. If you're just going to stand there and say, "No, play it this way," no, play it this way. That's that's not collaborating. That's you know, work for hire. <laughs> Yeah, that makes sense. You mentioned about the proceeds going to the NAACP, but talk about the nonprofit that you founded to help artists use their talent to serve communities. For sure. Uh, so my mother was my best friend, and she passed away in her 50s from lymphoma. Mm. 
quite kind of in a surprise way because she'd been diagnosed less than a year prior. Mm. Um, and that's a, a blood disease that typically is treatable. Sometimes uh, people go into remission after one treatment of uh, chemotherapy for five to 10 years. And that's what we were told. But even after a stem cell transplant, um, she ended up passing away within a year of her diagnosis. And I was about to release my first solo album. And I remember it's called Songs She Loved. I ended up dedicating it to mm. her a month later or two months later after I said, you know what, I can't just not release this. She would have been upset that her death uh, kept me from releasing it. Yeah. So I dedicated to her and um, gave the proceeds to the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Mm. Um, and it was through my work with that agency, which is the third largest nonprofit in the country at the time. Um, we're talking about um, 2006. Um, and so I was working with them quite closely and recognizing for the, really for the first time, seeing the work of other artists who were using their talent to help other people and through charity organizations mostly, but um, kind of struggling in that partnership because oftentimes they wouldn't use their management because they wanted to do something directly with the agency to support them without, and the, or the management doesn't want to be involved because there really wasn't money for them. So then the needs of the artist um, not always being addressed in a way that maximizes their use for the charity and the charity you know, both sides really having some struggles. And so I wanted to solve that problem. Um, I saw a headline artist at a major gala um, who, you know, I won't say her name because she said, I'm not working with this charity ever again. Wow. And I started asking her why. Um, and she said, you know, I, I didn't have the sound system that I needed. It, it made me, you know, not sound the way I needed to, to have the best impact. You know, there were just things that she felt was in her way to really do the work that she was there to do. Um, and so I felt it was very, very sad. So I founded an organization first that would help manage that relationship and get the most for the charity and the artist. Um, and that was for, you know, visual art, dance, all kinds of different art. Um, then we kind of opened up the programs um, as we had an office in Florida for a while and in St. Louis. Um, and so that we could really help artists in a lot of different genres and have some specific programs like Dance for Food, for example, that has raised um, over 40,000 pounds in the St. Louis market alone wow. um, to feed the hungry. And that, through a series of dance performances where uh, dance companies get paid and they uh, come together, oftentimes it's their only opportunity to come together with rival dance companies um, <laughs> to give an hour-long performance and that people come and bring non-perishable food to ah, pay to get in. Very nice. Um, so, yeah, lots of different ways of trying to use art to be a solution for community improvement. That's what Artists for Our Cause is about. Um, and I have always had kind of my work on the side of that that I do personally. Um, it started when I was trying to get the organization off the ground, doing a sacred tour, partnering with different sacred spaces of all different um, kinds to, um, to support their fundraising efforts through a concert that I produced of me. And I gave half the proceeds uh, to their charity uh, function, whatever it was, whether mm -hmm. it was, uh, you know, housing the homeless or feeding the homeless or whatever they, they did within that uh, charity space to help the community. Um, and then the other half I put into the budget for Arts for Our Cause to get it off the ground. So that was kind of my oh, grassroots uh, first effort personally. Fantastic. Fantastic. Wow. I'm joined today on the Now Hear This Entertainment guest line from just outside Princeton, New Jersey, by internationally acclaimed vocalist, actor, songwriter, and producer Terry Barber. 
visit his official website at terrybarber.com. I will put a link to it on the show page for this episode at nhte.net. And then on his website, there are links to connect with Terry on social media. So Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. Of course, Terry's music is available on Spotify, so you can certainly follow him on there. However, the better way to support him is to purchase downloads of his music from iTunes. Don't forget that his new single is dropping on June 26th. 20 of the concerts that Terry had scheduled were impacted by the coronavirus outbreak, so now more than ever is the time to support artists like him. I mentioned earlier about the Patreon for this show. Check out the bonus audio, which is ad-free, by going to the show website, nhte.net, and hit the orange-colored Support Us on Patreon button. It's only 5 bucks a month. Hear more from Terry Barber and bonus content for the previous 26 episodes of this show. I also want to say thank you for those that have been supporting Now Hear This Entertainment by way of your regular everyday purchases on Amazon. I see that activity in the monthly emails that they send to me. Feel free to email me yourself at podcast at nhte.net to let me know that you are buying from Amazon through their banner on my show website. Remember, it's no extra cost to you. You just go to the show website, nhte.net, scroll down to the tall Amazon banner, and then once you click that, it will open their shopping app if you're on your phone, or it will open their website if you're on your computer. Either way, at the end of the transaction, they will kick back a small percentage of the sale to me, which helps with the expenses that I have for putting out a new episode of this show every week. And remember, it's totally private. All Amazon tells me once a month is how much they're kicking back to me. I don't know who bought through them or what you purchased. So anyhow, thanks for your support of the show through the exclusive ad-free bonus audio on Patreon or by starting your online shopping through my Amazon banner. Terry, we know the new song is coming out on June 26th, but what else are you working on now songwriting-wise? That is a great question. (laughs) (laughs) And... um... You know how we, most of us go through life with some things in the back burner that are our wish list for, if I had more time, I would become a fitness model or whatever it is, right? (laughs) And you have this list of things that you maybe address and maybe you don't. The rainy day list. Yes. There's nothing like being trapped in a space for months at a time to start (laughs) looking at that list and (laughs) having a hard look at it and saying, was that ever real or was I really going to do that? Or was I just tricking, fooling myself the whole time? So I I looked at my list and I said, you know what? You need to get back to more songwriting. Mm. And I wanted to invest some time into it. So I went and bought the best-selling book on songwriting by Mark Cawley, C-A-W-L-E-Y. And I read that book and I noticed in the book that he offers coaching and, I mean, we're talking about a guy who's written hit songs, millions and millions of, of plays of his songs, uh, you know, been on millions of actual albums, records, CDs, uh, for artists like Shaka Khan and the Spice Girls and all kinds, of, and so many people. Um, and so I said to myself, well, it's on my bucket list now to coach with Mark Colley. Mm. Um, and I began that process um, right about as I was digging into When the World Falls Apart. Um, and he was, he was wonderfully tough, but I really saw like when he said, okay, let's go back to the drawing board on this. So he told me what he thought was working really well and he had some specific ideas for me. Um, and I am so glad in the revision process that he, uh, you know, told me some of those things because 
I felt like the song really got ahead because of working with him. And I'm starting to get a practice going again. You know what I mean? Like you do with yoga uh. or whatever, where you have certain certain tools like that, you know. And so the new song that I'm going to be releasing within the next month um, as a follow up to When the World Falls Apart, I actually haven't chosen the title yet. I have two or three different um, things I'm looking at, and I, I might survey my Facebook page audience mm. uh, and see what title they like after hearing some of the song. Um, it's definitely more uplifting. It's kind of a, a love song, but it doesn't say these words, but it kind of is, un- we are unstoppable and we can make a change for the better. Um, it's about looking ahead to the future of the world um, instead of saying, you know, we're in this crisis right now where the world's falling apart. Um, it's talking about the world turning around um, and, and, and saying that that can happen because of you, you know, like we're, we're together, we can do anything kind of, mm-hmm. uh, kind of message. And, um, you know, challenge for me is trying to say those things without, um, you know, I think upbeat, happy songs are harder to write. Um, it's very easy to go, to go to a place of cliche and cheesiness which is not on my list to do. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, that, that'll be another song in the pipeline. Well, hats off to you because, listeners, if you haven't figured out by now, w- well over a half an hour into this episode, the list of accomplishments of Terry's, there's more that, that we could get to. There's probably more that I'll get to on the Patreon that he's done that we're just not going to have time for here. But so, Terry, hats off to you because you've obviously shown that you can't just be content. We we all can't say, okay, you know, I'm I'm a pretty accomplished singer, or I'm a pretty accomplished podcaster, or I'm a pretty accomplished painter, whatever it is. We always have to be challenging ourselves. Well, what more could I do to be getting better? Even though I've had the success I've had, and in your case, you've said, okay, well, I want to go find the best of the best and improve my songwriting by opening myself up, be vulnerable, and say, okay, tell me what I could be doing better, and and you know, working with him one-on-one to say, all right, I, I do see how I can get even better at my craft than I thought I was already. I mean, Mark is a really sweet guy. I have to say, I probably brought more anxiety and tension to working with him the first time <laughs> than, you know, it was, I, I, I'm pretty much sure I lost some sleep the night before, like thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to bring my work to him and he's going to criticize it. Like, <laughs> yikes, you know, that's, uh, but at the same time, it was, I, I immediately could tell that we could connect artistically and that he was helping. So I, you know, I was sold right away. Wonderful. Wonderful. A lot of the guests that I've been interviewing over the last, say, two months were doing online performances during the pandemic. You talked about what you were doing with him. The, these are mainstream artists, meaning they're doing pop, country, singer, songwriter, those type of genres. I mentioned earlier that 20 of your concerts that were booked were impacted by the pandemic. Is it possible that the style of music you do doesn't lend itself to sitting at home and performing live on, say, Facebook or Instagram? Or were you, in fact, able to do some live streaming? I did a couple of very informal ones from my home. Um, There is such a list of problems with this mechanism that um, it is not a replacement for live performances. Um, One of the things I think we've all noticed very obviously is there are many of us who really have a primal need to get together in groups mm-hmm. with people mm-hmm. and have a shared experience, especially when it's an emotional artistic experience. There's nothing you can replace that with. Um, and especially uh, that the live streaming concerts, they have their own mechanism. And there are some good things about those. 
being able to write to the artist in the moment and give a comment yeah. and have the person look back and say, oh, they really liked it when I did that, or, or be able to have a dialogue with the audience during the performance, yeah. like, that's wonderful. Like, there, there are some good things to capitalize on, I think. And never say never, I'm looking into um, some mechanisms that might become a regular part of my tour season, you mm -hmm. know, a mm -hmm. monthly streaming concert from home. Mm -hmm. um, it's a different mechanism for people in Denmark who wanted to come, but they can't be there, you know. That's, there are so many little mm -hmm. things like that and big things like that that you can open up your audience globally with a push of a button. Yeah. Now, who are, how are they listening? Are, is it on a speaker on their laptop that wasn't made for audio? Maybe. Or sometimes the phone, which is, you know, those, those uh, speakers and microphones, as you know, are getting better and better. Yeah. But it's still a, limited by the size. When you go to a historic, beautiful venue that's built for acoustics, and then you've got a team of sound and lighting people, that's different. And how, and how, yeah, well said, well said. Yeah, I don't, I don't care how, how good you treat your room. Like you said, if you've got all these professionals that that's what they do, well, guess what? Your living room or whatever it is, your home studio might sound okay, but it's not going to sound like it would over there. It's just not. Yes, you are 100% right. <laughs> Listeners, I'm also going to put a link on the show page for Terry's episode at nhte.net to an interview I had done with David Serrero, who is an international opera and Broadway singer, actor, producer, and recording artist. So you can see the similarities in terms of why I'd think of him in conjunction with this week's guest. Terry, we're in the home stretch here, and we haven't talked about the actor side of you. Tell the audience about that hat that you also wear. To do with acting, um, I have to say I was a very late bloomer. I'm often reminded of that song from Chorus Line where the artist is saying, um, I, I, I was told I was a bad actor. I didn't understand why I couldn't act. And then I realized I needed to find a different teacher and that I could understand it in a different way. If I could just peel back time and say something to myself about my acting 20 years ago, um, I would be able to be in the place that I am now. And that is enjoying mm. delivering text, sharing with the audience in a way so that they can understand how you feel about what you're saying which is different um, than a lot of, um, for example, opera singers used to be criticized for just making a beautiful sound and not having it connected to them emotionally. Mm. Um, you know, now I feel whether I'm singing, even sometimes when I'm singing things that don't have words, like Rachmaninoff vocally, for example, is a good e example um, that I recorded uh, on Virgin Records for the Audi Amos Project. Um, that is a huge uh, emotional journey, that song, and there's not a word in it, right? Mm. So I feel like um, as a performer delivering the subtext, you know, how you're feeling about what you're doing is the, the most important thing, really. Um, and and uh, it's the difference between people connecting with what you're doing as, as an artist and not, I think, in a lot of cases. Outstanding. Last week on the show, I think I goofed a little bit as I listened back to the interview with Noah Guthrie. It felt like when I talked about Access Vegas and the special reports that they've done, it came across as though maybe that's all that they do, as as though that's all that Access Vegas is. No, definitely not. I want to clarify this week. It's a regular recurring newsletter delivered to your email inbox, plus their extensive archives and, yes, those special reports of theirs. 
So to now repeat what I was trying to highlight last week, they actually have 12 special reports, but their editor has told me that the three most popular of those are how to con the casino computers into comping you more, when are the best times to visit Las Vegas, and where are the cheapest and free ATMs on the Las Vegas Strip. In fact, in the case of that last one, my daughter is actually visiting Las Vegas right now, and I was able to tell her the secret about the cheapest and free ATMs because I had read it in Access Vegas. So go to my show website, nhte.net, click on the Access Vegas logo, and then during sign-up, put in the code BRUCE to get $5 off. Don't forget that they even offer a 60-day money-back guarantee, which you're not going to need that anyways because in 2019, the number of people that requested their money back didn't even hit double digits. Anyhow, go to my show website, nhte.net, click on the Access Vegas logo, and then during sign-up, put in the code BRUCE to get $5 off. Terry, back in the intro, I mentioned that you're known for your extreme range, stylistically between Sam Smith and Pavarotti, but I'm also fascinated that you list your influences as Andrea Bocelli, Il Devo, and Freddie Mercury. (laughs) You've done a Freddie Mercury tribute show, yes? That's right. So um, the nerd that I am, I kind of started by reading five biographies about him. Wow. Um, and trying to understand what would my audience want to know? What would, it, what would be entertaining to them about his life? Um, of course, the film came out right as I was about to go on tour with my program, which um, my program includes not only things he did with Queen, but also a big duet that he did with a huge opera star, Montserrat Caballé, for the Barcelona Olympics. Um, and uh, some other work, too. So it's really about him. It's not about Queen, but he obviously was the lead singer for the band Queen. Um, And uh, so, yeah, that's a really fun program. Um, The band and I, uh, we have a Tony-winning keyboard player singer um, who's also a model, Grace Field. We have uh, the lead guitarist from the Oak Ridge Boys, Don Carr, um, and my friend Jonathan Cummings, who toured with Barry Manilow, Mm. um, and uh, Bones Maltito is a fabulous bass player. So we're we're kind of wanting to deliver these songs in a way, um, our best way, uh, not totally trying to imitate the original. It's not really a cover in the traditional sense. In fact, um, I decided to release a concept album, which would point to Freddie's love of classical um, and his roots, uh, having been born in Zanzibar and gone to school in India, um, you know, he faced a lot of discrimination for a couple of different reasons. Um, but I felt like in my concept recording, reimagined Mercury, uh, that I could have some Indian and African instruments and, and do things that maybe if he were alive today, he would have been in the seventies. Uh, um, you know, that he might've wow. been a little more proud of, wow. of some of his roots. So. Wow. What a neat idea. But so I want to make sure I heard you correctly. So you're saying that you already had this show put together even before the movie came out. It wasn't that you saw the movie and were so inspired that you said, wow, I think I'm going to put together my own show in tribute to him. No, it was it was interesting how the timing worked. I found out about the movie production. Um, and, you know, maybe in the Patreon we can talk about some of the differences, differences between um, the reality and what the movie was doing uh, for Freddie Mercury's life. Um, but I found it largely entertaining and I could see that uh, their mechanism, their interest was in um, having people fall in love with Freddie Mercury. And that to me was a great 
uh, mission <laughs> for the movie. You know? mm, gotcha, gotcha. Well, a couple times listeners, Terry has mentioned, maybe we'll talk about this in the Patreon. So before he and I do that, I do want to close out the formal portion of the podcast interview. We're going to close today, Terry, with your new single, one called When the Worlds Fall Apart, which, listeners, this is the one that we heard earlier about the video for. But, Terry, before you and I go record that extra audio for Patreon, please tell the listeners all about the song When the World Falls Apart. This is my reaction to the crisis and more than one crisis that we've all been facing over the last few months. Um, it's really a song about uh, getting through. Uh, when the, get, What will we all do to move forward, you know, um, and having a look at our sense of humanity and where we are right now and where we want to be. Did you write the song yourself, I'm, I'm thinking? Yes, I wrote the lyrics and the melody. I collaborated with someone on the instrumental part of the track. His name is Timor Shate. But still I'm thinking that this had to come together awfully quickly for you because, granted, as long as it felt to a lot of us that two to three months of being in the pandemic, and I guess one could argue that we're still in it now, I still think that's awfully quick to sit down and write an entire song. You mentioned who you worked with on it, you know, get it produced, get it recorded, get it mastered, all that. And, and here it is coming out the day after this interview comes out on June 26th. Did it come together very quickly for you or was it, you know, no, it actually, it actually took me longer, Bruce. It's, this was not an overnight project. So a lot of it, it comes in bursts and spurts and then you kind of sit down and you say, okay, this is, a line that I wasn't totally um, satisfied with. So what other ideas do I have? So yes, it, it came quite quickly. I do have a recording studio in my home and uh, recording engineering has become the part of uh, how I entertain that part of my brain that would have been an engineer if I stuck with that degree. Uh, okay. um, so yeah, I do some of the production and engineering at home. I usually produce my own vocals. I, I produced the vocals um, and the uh, backing vocals at my home. Okay. Um, and then I, farmed it out, sent it to my friend Ben Kessler for mixing and mastering. Okay, okay. Well, you're going to hear it in its entirety in just a moment, folks. But, Terry, this has been great. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. I appreciate you coming on now here this entertainment. Bruce, thank you so much. I am so uh, glad that you are so thoughtful about your questions, and you obviously do your research, too. We have that in common. We like research. <laughs> <laughs> my pleasure. My pleasure. Listeners, that will do it for another episode of Now Hear This Entertainment. My sincere thanks to vocalist, actor, songwriter, and producer Terry Barber. Do visit his official website at terrybarber.com and then engage with him on social media. So that means like his Facebook page, follow him on Twitter and Instagram. I did all that myself earlier today, so please do the same. Subscribe to his YouTube channel and then watch and like the videos on there. For that matter, tell Terry that you heard him and his music on Now Hear This Entertainment. Remember that while, yes, you can also follow him on Spotify, the better way to support Terry is to purchase downloads of his music from iTunes. You've heard me say a couple times now, 20 of his shows were impacted by the coronavirus. It bears repeating that Terry's new single is going to be out as of June 26th. Again, Terry and I will have more conversation over in the bonus content that's only available exclusively through Patreon. There's already similar audio up there from the last almost six months worth of guests. It's only five bucks a month and it's ad free and that's the only place you can get it. I should probably say it more on this portion than that portion, but it also really means a lot to me when you show me that support. Go to the show website, nhte.net, hit the orange colored support us on Patreon button and that will take you to where you can gain access to the exclusive content. 
Remember also about scrolling down on nhte.net to the tall Amazon banner to start all of your shopping through them that way so that they can kick back a small percentage of the sale to help me with all the expenses I have for doing this show every week for what has been more than six years now. There is no extra cost to you for doing that. That's the beautiful part. For now, that will do it for episode 333. Thanks ever so much for listening. We'll send you out today with another song from Terry Barber. This is the one he just talked about called When the World Falls Apart. There's a crack in the ceiling Got nothing done today Just watch the paint peeling What day is it anyway? Wondering how do you feel? Oh, so sweet.